I'm Andrew Bernard, and you're listening to East Storycast, histories of trauma and emergency surgery told by the people who are there. Okay, good morning. It's uh, cold uh, November 11th, uh, 2017 morning here in Chicago. We're at the Hilton, uh, Michigan Avenue, looking out on the lake. I'm Andrew Bernard. I'm your host. I'm a professor of surgery at the University of Kentucky, and my other guests are Dr. Joseph Sacron, assistant professor Hello. of surgery at Johns Hopkins University, and Dr. Cynthia Talley, associate Hello. professor of surgery at the University of Kentucky. And we have with us a very special guest today, Dr. <clears throat> Linworth Jacobs. Dr. Jacobs is vice president of academic affairs and chief academic officer at Hartford Hospital. He is Assistant Dean of Education at the University of Connecticut and Director of Hartford Hospital's Trauma Program. He's Professor of Surgery and Chair of Traumatology and Emergency Medicine at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. And he developed the Hartford Hospital Center for Education, Simulation and Innovation, a nationally known medical training center. He is, of course, also the opening keynote speaker for this year's 2017 meeting of the American College of Surgeons Trauma Quality Improvement Program. So Dr. Jacobs, welcome and thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to meet with us today. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'd like to start by having you just tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, how you grew up, and how you eventually ended up at Hartford Hospital. Well, you know, I, I grew up in rural Jamaica and my dad was a well, he was actually a general surgeon, but in, in that era, that's a general everything. Um, so his main mission was to take care of people. He was a clinical doctor. And he really imbued in me the principles that if there are no patients, there are no doctors. So you have to take care of the patients, treat them like your own. And uh, his, his big thing was if, if you can tell if you're patient, you treat your patient like they're your mother's son or daughter, and then you have to explain to your mom what you're doing for the patient, you will do just fine. And that's been my guiding light to really respect all the patients, uh, no matter who you are or what you are or when I see you. That's what we're all about. That's a great adage. You told a story of being with your father, I think, making house calls uh, back in Jamaica and seeing a I think a child run over while on a bicycle, perhaps? That's exactly right. I was seven years old. It was about 6.30 at night. I remember it like yesterday. And I don't really think the child was particularly significantly injured. I don't know that. But I know he stopped and took care of this child and got her better. She was crying, and then she wasn't crying anymore. And that was a very powerful message for me that somebody can stop, take care of somebody else, and change a disaster into a good thing. And I said, that's what I want to do. How did you take these early experiences then, and then progress that into your medical education and your professional career? Well, you know, all I ever wanted to be was a, was a trauma surgeon. That's actually all I wanted to be. So I, I, didn't, I was totally focused on that from high school to university. And so th there was no other pathway for me other than that. That's what I wanted to do. So the, the good news is that when you're totally focused like that, you probably actually get it done. Um, so I, my goal was there are a lot of smarter people than me, but there was nobody that was going to outwork me. So that, and that was under my control. So that, that was sort of my guiding light. You had a very strong affiliation with EMS too. Uh, when you were in Boston, you were particularly involved in EMS development before you went on to Hartford. It was. It, it was very interesting. I, I was at the Brigham, and my boss was Fr Friday Moore or Francis Moore. And he called me in one day and said, Ryan, you need to do a master's in public health. And in those days, he said, uh, yes, Dr. Moore. And I said, well, what is that? I, I, I didn't know what it was. Um, but he said, well, just go to the Harvard School of Public Health and They'll, they'll teach you, you need to do that. So I did. Well, that was 1973. 
uh, Nazi year they wrote EMS called Nixon signed the EMS legislation so I was one of six surgeons with a MPH at that time and the one thing they do pretty well at Harvard is teach you how to write grants so pretty soon we had a six million dollar grant for training uh, people in basic and advanced life support in Boston and so I think I was 27 years old and directing Boston EMS probably because nobody else wanted to do it uh, but that was very exciting we, we were the first paramedics in the city of Boston so and I, I was running the trauma center at Boston City Hospital so in those days you work for a living we would do all penetrating injuries to the neck and abdomen were explored so you're probably doing six laps a night sometimes and running EMS and so it was just wonderful the experience was off the screen the downside of course was a lot of those laps were negative and I, that wasn't so good so the selective approach which came a decade later was, was better it, it really was but the experience you get from that of just evaluating people making decisions doing operations getting them better and then seeing it from the street so we watch you know being out in the EMS environment in the street it's very different you only have your hands and your brain out there so you learn assessment skills you learn who's sick and who isn't you learn that just because somebody's making a lot of noise doesn't necessarily mean they're very sick and the reverse somebody who's very quiet actually could be dying and those lessons are very real when you're in an environment where it's just one or two of you you don't have much light it's, it's noisy it's freezing cold um, and that went on to I developed uh, the air medical service for Hartford when I got there and we're in the Northeast so you learn to start IVs really fast because your fingers get cold and you can't feel the vein anymore so you got to get in there really really quickly before your fingers you lose sensation in this kind of weather so it's simple things but you learn to be efficient you learn to do what you have to do and learn to be really good at it so you just don't make mistakes or make as few as possible. You talked about EMS and you talked a lot about change and innovation in your presidential address uh, for EAST. You were one of the four founding uh, members of yes. EAST and you were the third president and I noted that you were the first program chair. I hoped you could tell us a little bit about what it's like to plan the first annual meeting of a brand new surgical organization. What's that like? Well, that was a challenge because um, not everybody thought that was a good idea. Um, some people thought it was a really bad idea and they actively discouraged us from proceeding ahead. So we said, well, no, we're just gonna go ahead and do this because the reality is it was difficult to get into the more senior organizations. Uh, there were very attenuated uh, entry criteria, and that meant that the younger people were not able to get in. So the purpose of EAST was to create an, an environment where young people could really get involved, uh, present their work, and have it published and make a difference. Well, obviously, that creates a competitive environment and the people you're competing against don't particularly think it's a good idea. So they put a lot of pressure on the people who are to discuss the papers that maybe they might not want to do that. 100% of the people that we asked to discuss agreed to come and discuss the papers. So that was really, really good. And we decided that since this was competitive, we were going to come out of the gate in a, in a very competitive way. Nine minute, 59 second presentations, very brief discussions, keep on time. But more importantly, the paper had to be written before the event and the reviewer had to review the paper. And then all the discussions were type recorded in real time. So we had our secretaries there, they were typing this in real time. And then it was reviewed within three days of the meeting and sent into the Journal of Trauma. So at that time, I was just 
completely new to have the whole thing within a week of the conference packed up, evaluated, reviewed, selected, and into the journal. And because of that, we said, well, you would, we'd be very happy if you could publish these things in six months. And they did. <laughs> so within a year of starting it, we were for real. You could get your work published within six months and in highly reputable journals. And so people started to take us very, very seriously within a year of starting the organization. D Dr. Jacobs, you uh, mentioned that there was you know, some pushback against doing this and even you know, maybe discouraging discussions from participating. And you said they, is, are we talking about you know, organizing bodies or, I mean, you don't have to mention any names. I'm just curious, wh where was that pushback coming from? And how did you, how did you overcome those challenges? Because a lot of times, you know, in, in things that we're doing that maybe are new or people are not familiar with, you can get a little bit of, you know, um, that criticism. And so it might be interesting to understand how you overcame those challenges. Yeah, that's, a, that's a good point because it, it wasn't malicious. It's that I think the more senior people didn't really think that, you know, in the, in the early days, yeah, if you were greater than 50 years old, you couldn't be, uh, hold any office in it. So this is definitely drive, driven for a young person's organization. So there was a little bit of question whether you could actually present high quality, get it done, and be competitive. And that's a totally reasonable thing. Um, and so that was really the driver, that you didn't want to bring young people into a second-class environment. Um, so that was our challenge, that we were not going to do that. We were going to bring them into a first-class environment. And I wouldn't say be more rigorous, but be as rigorous or potentially more rigorous in our reviews and everything else as the more senior organizations. And I think the, the, the uh, times proved that that actually was the case. Right. And if you fast-forward 20 years or so, East guidelines are worldwide, and they're built on the premise that you know people do really good work. They're incredibly rigorous about it, and the guidelines are something which makes a difference in the clinical environment. So that's what we set out to do in the beginning. But you know, when you never did it before, it's not uh, people don't necessarily think you actually can pull that off. But yeah. I think we did. Fascinating. We want to talk a little bit about uh, the Hartford consensus, and maybe you can, you know, just tell us your thoughts as to how you were inspired um, by, you know, the events that took place and how that really kind of changed you both on a personal and professional level, uh, because uh, clearly it's something that uh, I think um, has not only had an impact uh, on you, but you've been able to take that experience and really kind of spread those lessons on a national level. So uh, maybe we'll just kind of open with that and see see where it goes. Yeah, well, you know, it all started for me at, at Sandy Hook. Yeah. Uh, elementary school, uh, six-year-old children, and somebody went in and uh, basically used a high-caliber 223 NATO rounds like a hundred of them in a really short period of time and, and these children had all crowded into a small place so the kinetic energy was uh, overwhelming and I got involved after the event I was asked to review things after the event and when you see that it actually changes you you it, it is not I mean, I've seen a lot of trauma, I've seen a lot of people die, and you know, it's all very terrible and all, but it's not even in the same league as seeing six-year-olds devastated by high-impact, high-velocity high ammunition. And I just felt that you can't see something like that and just have a moment of silence and move on. It's, you just can't do it. Or if you do, you, you're not the person that you thought you were. So I was on the Board of Regents and we met two weeks later. So I petitioned them and they said, yeah, do something about it. So 
we formed this committee to increase survival from active shooter and international mass casualty events. It became very, very clear that this is a multifactorial everything. So if you want to increase survival, you have to get involved from literally, presumably you have to get involved before, but in prevention, that would be good. But we chose to, it happened. How do you increase survival? And so you have to involve law enforcement. They're there. They're the ones who get the 911 call. Fire police or fire rescue is there. Emergency medical services systems are there. There are three totally different jurisdictions, different everything, different rules of operation. And you have to involve them. And we also got heavily involved with the, the military, specifically the SEALs, because uh, Frank Butler, who's, who was the chair of that, had done just seminal work with the military. Um, and, and the groups, the, the Rangers and the SEALs, their survival was totally different than the rest of the, uh, the US military because of these principles. So we, Frank was, was in the original Hartford Consensus, as was the FBI, as was the uh, Homeland Security, as well as medical people. And probably the most profound thing was that these organizations are big, they're autocratic, and they don't get, they don't get pushed around. They push people around. So it, it was necessary for everybody to come to a different place, give up something to get something. And the, the wisdom of these leaders was such that they did that. And it required modification of law enforcement to, to modify their approach from, from scene security to scene security and hemorrhage control. EMS had to modify from waiting till it was totally safe, which is usually a long time, to getting a little closer. And you might think, well, that's pretty logical, but there's a lot of reasons for this. The, 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 um, you don't want to totally disrupt your crime scene, you know, which is these things are. So law enforcement doesn't want to have a whole lot of people tramping through. The forces don't want to have EMS, who does not have protective gear, they're not trained in all of this in the middle of a firefight. Uh, the unions have something to say about all of this, uh, it's a problem. And then once you get past that and say this is a good thing, you have to train them. So if you train 10 people, it's not a big deal. If you train 35,000 people in New York City, that is a big deal. And if you decide you're going to equip 300,000 law enforcement officers, equipping them, any number multiplied by 300,000 is a big number. So the costs of this are huge. The equipment costs are huge, the training costs are huge, the implementation of that, what does it mean with a new skill, does that mean more compensation or what? It's a lot, and people had to then work with that. And what the deal was is we, would, we developed the recommendations. They had to, within 48 hours, get back to their leadership and say, can we live with this or not? Which is not an easy trick, which means they had to position the leadership. And they said, the leadership said, yeah, we, we can try. And so and we work on 48 turn, turnaround. So you got to stop what you're doing and pay attention to this, which was also the thing, because these are all incredibly busy people. So if you don't keep it on the very, very, very front burner, it'll never get done. So all turnarounds are very, very fast. And then you had to implement. There's no point having a policy if you don't implement it. So we did. Um, now, there's a lot of luck in these things. Oh, it's actually bad luck, but bad things were happening. So after Sandy Hook came Boston, after Boston came Paris, Nice, Orlando, Dallas, and now Las Vegas, and then Texas, and it just goes on and on. So New York. So people were seeing that they, they, this is something important. Because in the beginning, I think people thought this was a good thing, but you know, it never happened in my neighborhood. So it's academically and intellectually a fine thing to do, but we get to that one later. But with all of these things happening, big place, small place, ball fields with the, with the uh, congressman, 
people are saying, whoa, we're in a changed environment here. And this is not only US-wide, this is worldwide. So by having the American College of Surgeons, remember we have leadership in 50 states, we have a ton of international um, leadership and committees and stuff. We're able to go worldwide. The other key thing is that <laughs> when you're going out to the public, they don't have a whole lot of time for you. Um, and it became clear, people would say, well, okay, we, we, we'll give you between church and cooking dinner, between eating food and watching the ball game. So that came down to about half an hour. That's all you've got. So you've got to then choose what is it you're going to teach somebody in half an hour. Somebody who doesn't know anything about medicine, um, probably doesn't even care about it. And so it's got to be really, really simple, probably targeted at about 6th to 8th grade, and powerful, impactful, uh, meaningful to the person. This is a skill I need. And one of the mantras was that it's like CPR. You know, it's a good thing to do. It's a public good. Or like Heimlich. You wouldn't really have somebody choking in a restaurant beside you, call 911 and go and eat your dinner. You could get up and do something. So that became the public empowers the citizens to do a public good. So we are empowering the citizens to do a public good in stopping bleeding. And the reality is that for the first 10 or 15 minutes, if you're in a hostile environment, if you're going to live, it's the person beside you who's going to save you. Or conversely, if they're bleeding to death, it's you that are going to save them. And most people actually feel that that's a very reasonable thing to do. Uh, but now you've got to give them the skill to do it. Because if you remember that the person is hurting, what you're going to do to them is going to hurt them. They're going to be screaming at you. But you are saving their life. So you have to really be very empowered to do something which is going to hurt somebody to save their life. CPR doesn't hurt anybody because you're dead. So, and Heimlich, whether you hurt them or not, doesn't matter because you can't talk. There's, there's a piece of meat in between your vocal cords. So it's a very different kind of situation than somebody who, who's bleeding to death, but his brain is working just fine, and his vocal cords are working just fine. They're going to be really shouting at you. Yeah. Uh, in my own environment, I've done a lot of work, maybe three, four hundred calls in the air medical environment to the scene. So uh, I've seen a lot of people who are hurting and you don't have analgesia and you, you got to do stuff which they don't appreciate in the beginning, but they certainly appreciate it as soon as they understand what you're doing. So as I say when I'm teaching people, you're not treating a wound, you're treating a patient. So you're doing something, but you're talking to him as well, it's okay. Stay with me. I'm gonna, you're going to be okay. Hang in there. Hang in there. And you'll be shocked to see that that analgesia is probably better than morphine. Yeah. You know, what's interesting in, in listening to you describe this is that there's a lot of great ideas out there. But what I gleaned from what you just said is that your approach was really inclusive. And I'm wondering... You know, that inclusivity that you brought and that thoughtfulness that you brought to the table, um, do you think that's part of the reason that, uh, you know, the group and the consensus has become so successful? And how do you take something from an idea and then be able to give it teeth at such a national level, at the level of the White House? Uh, it's, it's fascinating. Can you just maybe um, talk a little bit about that? Because it seems like you know, if you're sitting in a room just thinking about whatever idea it is to actually getting to a place where you've actually been able to make a difference at such a large level that sometimes those obstacles uh, seem quite high and, you know, it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on this. Well, I think it's the power of the idea. It's not the cost, it's the power. So I'll give you a for instance. I was just thinking about this yesterday in the airport. You used to have an industry of porters carrying your bags around. There are no porters anymore. There are wheels on your suitcase. Everybody has wheels on their suitcase. What a simple idea. Put a wheel on your suitcase and you carry it yourself. You know? The efficiency of that, the movement of you and your baggage from point A to point B effectively. It's all because of a wheel. 
very inexpensive, very simple, very effective. And so it's the power of the idea that drives it. And just what we say is, you know, if, if you, you only have X amount of blood in your body, if you have a pool of red blood on the floor, that's actually your life you're looking at. So the goal of this thing is to keep that blood in your body. If you can do that and get the patient to us, you, you have an overwhelming likelihood of living. If all the blood is on the floor, you have an overwhelming likelihood of dying. It's zero one. So what is the solution? Keep the blood in the body. How do you do that? Stop it from coming out. How do you do that? With your hands. Everybody has hands. You get a little more technical with a hemostatic dressing or with a tourniquet, but everybody has hands. So as long as you have hands and can hold, and you're not holding for six hours, you're holding for maybe five, seven minutes, your hands are going to get really, really tired, but you probably can do that. And that all of what I said there is true. So, and it's every citizen can understand that message. So then it's, do I really want to help you or you or you? And so we decided to ask that question of the public. And come to find out, 94% of the public said they want to help somebody that they didn't know just because it's a good thing to do. 94%. That's just such a phenomenally overwhelming number that we said, yeah, that's the, public, the public are good people. They want to do good things. It is our job now to teach you how to do good things. We have to empower you anymore. You're empowered. The only reason you're not doing good things is because you don't know what to do and you don't have it to do it with. Mm -hmm. So if we can teach you what to do in half an hour with very simple things and give you it, you will do it and come to find out that's a true statement. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really why the public has caught on to this, you know, and, and then, you know, the other thing is, well, how low can you go, you know, because in the beginning people said, well, you really shouldn't, you want to be teaching adults and then maybe, you know, high school and, huh? Well, we're now teaching Boy Scouts. You know, Boy Scouts are sort of pubescent uh, or a little lower than that. And they're, they're doing it just fine. So this is a public good that the citizens should have. And the other major barrier was that, it would, well, I'd like to do that, but I, you know, I'm really not too into the terrorism and the, uh, those kind of things, you know, explosives. So you, modify the, the statement to any cause. You could be, your husband could be the chainsaw, your wife could be the kitchen knife. I don't mean gender things, but bad things can happen. Your kid can fall on a stake. You seriously want to watch your husband, wife, or child bleed to death in front of you because you don't know what to do? Or if we can give you something to keep them alive, is that a good thing or not? 100% of the people think that's a good thing. 100%. So it's really very easy to move it forward because a hundred percent of the audience thinks that's a good thing there's buy-in yeah did you th oh sorry go ahead. no i was gonna say did you think when you first started that this was gonna be this big and where do you see this going you know 10 years from now children absolutely not didn't did not think this would be this big uh in the beginning they <laughs> The obstacles look very overwhelming, you know, changing uh, big operations, operating philosophies and policies without any laws, without any money, without any, just using moral persuasion. That one there looked pretty, pretty daunting. But as I say, the power of the idea is not really us, it's the power of the idea that really moved it forward. Yeah. Dr. Jacobs, you uh, dedicated your compendium of the consensus to Dr. Norman McSwain. Can you tell us what he meant to your group and to you personally? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I knew Norman since about 1975, and he was the head of the pre-hospital EMS uh, section of the Committee on Trauma. And as I said, in Boston, I, I, I was doing that, and there's probably about 20 of us nationwide who had interest in that kind of thing and in the pre-hospital. So it became a natural group of people to get to know each other. And a lot of those people were actually the founding members of EAST. And so we, it was a hard 
driving crowd. I mean, it wasn't all academics, I can tell you that. There were some pretty good times that went on during those early years. And so our families knew each other. We saw the kids growing up and met each at many, many meetings. So we became really, really good friends. And uh, I took over from Norman, the pre-hospital, the COT pre-hospital uh, committee. And he, he and I just were like brothers. We got on extremely well. He was a very helpful person. And he was actually the first person I called after Sandy Hook. And I said, Norman, we got to do something about this. And he said, I'm all in. And he, and he was. And um, the, his article in the compendium was the last article he wrote. And that was special. Because until 10 days before he passed, he was fully engaged and involved in, in this kind of thing. Phenomenal person. Just all good. You know, he, and a hard driver. Um, not going to back down. He's just totally committed to what he's doing. He's kind of like this Frank Butler. They're not going to back down. So it's good people to have in your corner when you're in very <laughs> contentious discussions because, you know, they'll have your back and they're hard, very hard workers. So the, the whole Hartford consensus, the whole group was like that. So it, it um, people took it very seriously and really saw the, the good and the wisdom in it and they would not back down against sometimes fairly significant um, pushback. Dr. Jacobs, <clears throat> you were the first program chair of East and your local arrangements chair was Ray Alexander. Yes. You have a strong interest in EMS as did Dr. McSwain. Can you just tell us a little bit about Ray Alexander? Just a great guy. Um, just, you know, he he unfortunately passed on um, too soon, but he was totally focused on what we were trying to do. Very, very helpful, knew the area, the whole Florida area extremely well, and so was able to facilitate getting us into places. And also, a lot of the early places were more set up more as tourist places than academic places. So he was able to work with these people to reconfigure things as an academic meeting. We need big time audiovisual, dark rooms, things like that, which are not what you particularly get in a um, more of a tourist venue. So he, he was very good with that and really a dedicated person, smart guy, good academic, um, knew exactly what we were trying to achieve and, and just was uh, totally on board with trying to make this successful for the younger people. In the um, early 90s, you felt um, about education for the young surgeon uh, needed to make an, a contribution to trauma. Is this what inspired Adam? How did that come about? Well, as I said, you know, we came up in the era of a lot of exploratory laparotomies, cervicotomies, thoracotomies. So we were pretty good open surgeons. With the more selective approach, a, that you would really want to determine without looking inside whether the peritoneum had been violated and or an organ was injured. So with better imaging, uh, you know, in those days DPL, um, but then angiography and angioembolism, the number of open explorations dropped precipitously, which was a good thing. And so the bottom line is you're only operating on grade four and grade five injuries, not grade one, two, and three. Well, good news is you weren't operating on grade one, two, and three, and patients did very well. The bad news is that you didn't get a whole lot of experience in doing that. And when you did operate on the fours and fives, usually what the senior guy would say, well, let, 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 me, let me help you here. And uh, you, you watch this one. So you still didn't operate on anything of great substance. So the experiential learning was rapidly becoming absent. So. We, a friend of mine in South Africa, came up with the idea that if you use a large animal model and create these injuries, that would do it. So a 50 kilogram swine is a is very similar torso size to you and I. The organs are, they're not 
exactly the same, but they're similar enough that you can certainly understand what you're doing. And we thought, instead of waiting to, to get a trauma at 2 in the morning when you're tired and probably not going to do it because the senior is going to do it, why don't we do scheduled trauma? So on two, next Tuesday afternoon, we're going to do 12 operative procedures between noon and 3 o'clock. And it's scheduled. And it's exactly the same. So the, the morning time was devoted to really doing the cognitive stuff. And, and in that, what we realized is you need to be heavily pictorial. So I was working with a group at Cinemad who had just excellent graphic artists. So they did all of that. And, and then pretty much everybody was helpful in writing for the atom text. But what we did is, in the beginning it was, can you make a small wound in the vena cava? Well, small is not well defined. So is that one millimeter, is it two centimeter? So became very clear to me you had to film everything. And that became a centimeter wound in the cava is a centimeter wound. If you show people, 100% of the people know what that is. It might be 9 millimeter, it might be 11 millimeter, but it's close to 1 centimeter. So we filmed everything. Now the interesting little piece in that was uh, the cinematographers working with, uh, we've done a lot of cinematography together. But when we filmed it, it didn't look right. And it took a long time to figure out that the reason it didn't look right is your eyes look straight down. He was over my right hand shoulder. So it didn't look right. So we had to shift so that he was looking directly at the wound and I was over here way to the left. It's technically more difficult to operate like that. But then all of a sudden, he was seeing what my or your eyes are seeing. So it became very real. And all of the atom stuff that's on the CD is designed that way. So people look at it and say, oh, yeah, I can do that. And they can. And what about 60 sites worldwide now and I've pretty much been in all of them we usually go and open the first one a surgeon is a surgeon is a surgeon when you're in Africa, Asia, Europe, South America North America, doesn't matter they all, they all train a little differently because you have United States training you have British training, French training Belgian training uh, training from China and stuff so they trained a little differently but the hand skills are very very similar so you find out that if you, if a good surgeon, if you show him what you're gonna, what you want him to do, and then take him through doing it, his chance of reproducing it is a whip in the nineties. And again, the thing that really drove me is people were writing. I can remember in Africa, one of the surgeons said, "I, I, I can't fix a heart." I said, "Well, why not?" He said, "Well, I never was trained in that." So I said, "Okay." It's just a muscle. You set up a lot of muscles, so let's do it. And he did it, and the the swine recovered. And whoa! About three weeks later, he wrote me and said that uh, a young, sixteen-year-old girl had a stab wound to the right ventricle, and he did a thoracotomy and repaired it, and she walked out of the hospital. So in in Africa, they call them atomites. So the atomites got a lot of. Um, forward progress and to me that's where it's at you know mm -hmm. if you can do something and save one life that's that's good enough for me so how did it get incorporated with the American College of Surgeons as a course well you know we were we're not really tasked to run an international um, enterprise so once we got it up and running and standardized it it became pretty clear to me if you really wanted to go nationwide and worldwide you need to have a body who is doing that and I'd had good experience with ATLS in the pre-hospital group, and then Norman did the pre-hospital trauma life support, and we had a lot of experience with that. So we just used those principles and put it into the college using the same set, the same principles, the same organizational distribution system, and the same training methodologies. And they're tasked for that, and so that's why I just thought it made best, more, best sense to embed it in that. And now it's one of the college programs. And the other thing, which is, two things are interesting. The American Board of Surgery has flirted with using that in the same way they do FLS to do ATLS. Excuse me, to do, well, they do ATLS. It's FLS and ATLS. They're flirting with doing ATOM. So 
it's a little more expensive and stuff like that, but they're flirting with it. And the military is flirting with it. So it's the same deal. You know, they're uh, women fighting wars in Iraq and Afghanistan for 15, 16 years. The people in the early years when there were tons and tons of casualties, they're, they're moving up to the top end. The people coming in are trained in minimal invasive surgery. When you go to war, you could be an orthopedic surgeon, a vascular surgeon, a, you know, OB. You're a trauma surgeon now. So we're really working with them to develop the training skills for open surgery. Because closed surgery or minimal invasive surgery is not helping you when you have a belly full of blood you can't see and you don't have the equipment and all of that you just have mm -hmm. cold steel in your hands so and some of these injuries are pretty back to sandy hook you know you get hit with a high velocity round it's going to cause you some serious problems so you really do need to have a surgeon who has seen that many many times before it doesn't matter whether it's in a real environment a live animal model or a simulated environment it doesn't really matter you're just not going to be intimidated by it and you can jump in and, and solve the problem or try to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And it's not only for the patient, obviously you want to solve it for the patient, but for the surgeon, you don't want somebody to say, ooh, I can't do this. That's not what you want. You want to say, I can do this. It was bigger than me, but I made all the right moves, but it was bigger than me. You can live with that. If you just don't know what you're doing and the patient gets away from you, you can't live with that. So that's why a lot of these groups are adopting or thinking about adopting these models. I have a couple of follow-up questions, Dr. Jacobs, and we know you're getting ready for your, your keynote address here, so we won't keep you too long. At the table for the Hartford Consensus Development, you had uh, uh, Surgeon General of the United States, you had Operations Director for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, you had the chief uh, medical officer for health and human services. You had the White House. How do you manage big personalities with potentially big egos and bring them all to consensus? That's a major challenge. Um, you obviously did it beautifully. Well, uh, you got to stay focused. You know what? What are we here for? Um, you got to remember, hard for consensus. We got together the night before very social situation, introduced everybody and this and that. Uh, we'd start at 6.30 in the morning. We'd run from 6.30 to 11.30. And we're, we're running through a, probably about four or five things. And it's in real time. So the Alex Eastman, who was one of us, he's very, very skillful on the um, computer. So he would have a bullet and people would comment on the bullet and he'd put it up there. And once we've finished with that, we're everybody good with this? Good, so you've finished. So then we move through usually about four or five areas. And it's bulletin. And then we break at 11.30 for lunch. Come back afterwards, and people have either called whoever they need to call or thought about it a little bit, and they come back and modify that. But we said, well, yes, you did say that. Uh, it's written right down there on the, on the screen. And yeah, that's what we had in mind. So you show we want to modify it or what? And you get a consensus. It's not the half of unanimous, it's the half of consensus. <laughs> and then by two o'clock, we're done. So we run from 6.30 to two o'clock, we're done. And that final document, you walk out of the room with it because Alex was typing it in real time, push print, hair or sand, that's it. And that's the consensus document you're going to show to your leadership. And you got 48 hours to get back to me with it. And if you can live with it, fine. If not, uh, tell me why. It's going to be really difficult to modify it, but you need to know that. Vanishingly few modifications. Vanishingly few. And then I would turn that background in 24 hours back to the group. If there's no comment, that's it. So in four days, it's out the door. And that's what we're doing. In 2011, President Obama issued the Presidential Policy Directive 8, which called for strengthening the security and the resilience of the United States. This was an initiative unlike any defense initiative we had seen in, in our time. And I like to quote from that directive. 
everyone can contribute to safeguarding the nation from harm. Was the White House charge for the Hartford consensus uh, a key part of the momentum that you were able to maintain? Because I have a follow-up question to that. Well, this is a very big country. Um, the White House and national security only really deals with things which are of security problems to the nation. Now, everybody thinks that their problem is a big problem. Uh, that's just a yeah. fact. So the White National Security Council filters through things which they think are now problems to the nation, like Ebola, for instance, or hurricanes, or it's got to be big national, because it's national security. So we were on the radar with Boston and, and then Paris and stuff like that. So we were on the radar, but what happened is there was a shooting at Fort Hood where a ton of people were killed. It's a military installation. It was very bad. But, you know, kind of got over that. We were asked to come to the White House, and we met actually in the war room. And the day before our meeting was the second Fort Hood shooting, or two, second one. And uh, that definitely got the attention of the West Wing, definitely. So we, our meeting was about increasing survival from active shooter and intentional mass casualty events. So the people who came there, the Assistant Secretary of Defense was there, and more brass than his on your whole life. And they wanted to know is, is this for real or not, you know? And the principles definitely seemed like were for real. And they synced up extremely well with Frank Butler's principles for uh, educating and, and putting an IFAX on so every soldier's uh, thing. And had the, the data to show it make a big difference. Uh, unnecessary deaths went from 7.8% to 7.2% to 2.8%. Huge, huge difference. And it's cheap, it's easy, it doesn't take much things. Why aren't we doing this? So, in a lot of ways, it was fortuitous that those things came together. And that gave a lot of power to the idea. And the other thing that was very interesting, this is an interesting story. Whenever you try to put on an idea, you the tagline. Um, I didn't know too much about this at the time. I know a lot about it now. A tagline has to be two or three words, so it's army strong, um, you know, drop roll. <laughs> Very few words which describe what it is that you're trying to say, and they're usually action verbs, so they're telling you stuff. See something, do something, four words. Well, it gets your attention, but it empowers you to, to do whatever the people want you to do. So. They wanted one for uh, a tagline is not national committed to increase survival from active shooter and intentional mass casualty. That is not a tagline. So it came up with it took four federal departments, five months, perhaps I have to say hundreds of hours of discussion, big time ad firm to come up with Stop the Bleed. And in fact, I, I was a little concerned because the English wasn't so great. Stop the bleed is not what we're doing. We stop bleeding. But the people said that stop the bleed would get, get the nation's attention. So they went with that. Then you have to test it, the national testing and stuff like that, and it has traction. And it has. So stop the bleed is a very powerful thing. And the color... It's a stop sign, so it's stopping something, and the color is red, that's the color of arterial blood, not venous blood. So there's a lot in, in a very simple thing, stop the bleed. The other one we're fooling with is prevent the bleed, because stop the bleed means it, it happened, it's bleeding. Prevent the bleed is before. So there's, that's different, it's a different tagline. So. When you launch a tagline like that, it's millions and millions of dollars, just millions of dollars, um, because it's everywhere. 
you know, it's in subways, it's in this and that. And some of the stuff I show today, as we now have it, well, today is a big meeting. There's probably 2,000 people there. But 2,000 people in 250 million is nothing. It's a grain of sand on the beach. So if you want to go out to people, you got to use different media. And the tagline from CBS is uh, on Code Black, that seen by 7 million people the night that it launched. And now the Patriots, two weeks ago, launched at halftime. There's 70,000 people in the stand. And there's probably 10 million people that watch that. So we're trying to get in every single NFL stadium and move these things around. And a lot of people will see it. So the goal here is inform. So you say, well, what is that? Oh, I see what that is. Then educate. So now you're informed, your receptors are open, we can educate you. And then we empower you to do it. So it's inform, educate, empower. And the inform part, you're trying to inform 250 million people. It's a daunting task. So it's it's um, it's very interesting. We, we hardly even start at the start line yet, much less moving along, but but it's it's beginning to get some traction. Another tagline, zero preventable deaths. So this year the NASA report was released. Yeah. There are 11 objectives in that report. It seems to me to operationalize the objectives of a national trauma care system, which is what's described there, will take similar impetus support from the West Wing, as you say. What would you say to that? Well, I think you're right. Um, well, there's a process here that the West Wing or the president has a bully pulpit. People actually listen when the president speaks. So the president is, doesn't usually speak without being informed about what the problem is and what to do about it. So generally speaking, these presidential directives are very few and far between. Um, and to get one is major. Now that does not influence, well it, it is not legislation, it's a directive. So you got to go from a directive to something that tells people what to do. Because these government agencies need to know what to do. So we partnered with FEMA. And FEMA gives away $60 billion a year. And they have uh, directives which go with that. If you want my money, you follow these directives. And most people do want $60 billion, me, billion. So a FEMA directive is very important, and that's one step lower down. That is telling you what to do, how to do it, how to measure it. And if you get money for something, this is what you do with it. It's much more granular. And then that drifts down to states, and states do things. And then it drifts to, you know, to schools and churches and this and that and malls and stuff. So we're dovetailing on with with the automatic external defibrillators, which are getting to be ubiquitous now. Um, and so don't confuse the public. If, if you go into that space for when you have a heart attack, go there when you have a bleeding attack. Okay, same space, side by side. And you put a flashing light there. So if in a heart attack, it's not that problem because you have lighting infrastructure and all of that. In a terrorist thing, half the infrastructure is gone. So you need to have a flashing light so that people can get there if there's no light and they know where it is that's where you're going and you know how to get back so how where are you going to put them if you're going to basically die in five to six minutes you have to have them three minutes out three minutes back that's where you put them so it's very simple stuff you know but as you can imagine there's a lot of buildings around and there's a lot of malls, and there's a lot of stadiums, and there's a lot. So it's, it's an expensive proposition, and these are unfunded mandates. So it, it takes a while to really, it's the power of the idea. Is it a good idea? Is it good for the, the good of the, the public to do this? Yeah, it probably is. Then let's find a way. Uh, Dr. Jacobs, you mentioned prevention, and... Um, I was hoping you might be able to give us a little bit of insight and thoughts because after Sandy Hook, I, I personally thought that that was going to be the impetus to help, you know, drive common sense, you know, firearm legislation similar to, you know, other countries like Australia in the 90s when they had the Port Arthur massacre. And um, 
you know, as someone who who kind of tries to look at this um, overall problem as a public health crisis, I'm just curious as to your thoughts as to, you know, how do we get past, you know, all the partisan rhetoric and really um, get some solutions that Americans can agree upon? Well, obviously, a hugely thorny issue. Um, the American College of Surgeons has a very good statement on this. It's probably nearly 20 years old. Um, so it hasn't had, it's a very good statement, but it hasn't had a salutary effect on the problem. So you want to try, if you're trying the same thing over and over again and it doesn't work, there's probably a message there. So you want to try something slightly different. Uh, engage, identify who is opposed to these things and why. Engage them in a dialogue so that you understand what their issues are and they understand what your issues are. And generally speaking, most people don't want citizens shot to death and bleeding. They really don't. Um, so you got to really get to the place. How can we work together? And, and we've done that with some some pretty important groups around uh, Stop the Bleed. So you don't necessarily have to be helpful, but just don't be hurtful kind of thing, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and we respect that people have different opinions and they're reasonable opinions. But I haven't met anybody yet who thinks it's a good idea to shoot a six-year-old with a, a high-velocity uh, bullet. None. Zero. Um, so, you know, you start from a place where you can get agreement and the places you can move with, you move. And the places where there's just overwhelming resistance, leave it alone. Yeah. Come back to it later. Because yeah. you just spend too much time and energy on a immovable rock. You know, go around it. Don't go through it. Go around it. At least that's my philosophy. Yeah. And people, you know, or surveys of the public are pretty, a lot of people want to have a public good. And those, those are the same people. I mean, this is a random, we don't ask other questions than what we're asking. So we're getting a random bite of what the public thinks. And it's probably a pretty decent bite. So now you have to craft and fashion your message in a way that people who have a country or a pair or they think they have a country approach to what you're doing can can live with what you're doing and actually embrace it. What do you think the future challenges are for upcoming leaders? Is there anything you're concerned about in the area of surgery coming up? Well, I think you know, the, the younger you are, is the more idealistic you are. When you look at the high school students, you go into high schools a lot, and then into medical school, these are very idealistic people. There's no, well, I can't say nobody, the overwhelming majority want to be in it to do a public good, to take care, good care of patients. It's as you drift upward that you get more cynical. So our challenge is to capture and maintain and develop that just nascent goodness in people. We had it. We probably still do have it. We just gotta groom it and make it come up for the next 50 years. And I think East did a very good, or is doing a very good job of that. You know, there's still a ton of young people coming to these meetings, more now than before. So you gotta keep inspiring them to, you can do something, you know. I'm a great believer in that. And that's why this uh, Stop the Bleed is so good. You know, you can go to your church, your uh, school, high school, junior school, baby school, to your police force, to your fact, anywhere, and be a leader in this and a champion. You can pick up the phone and call the governor, the commissioner, or whatever, and they'll actually listen to you because you have a good message, and it's cheap, it's easy, it's, it's uh, effective, and it's a public good. Now, not too many people get that opportunity. And if we can really inspire the young people to do things which you get a tremendous amount of personal benefit and societal benefit from, they will do well and they'll feel good about themselves. And the good news is that you got to remember that still to get into medical school you got to be pretty smart. So 
you're picking, I don't know what percentage is, but certainly single digits, if not 1% of the population in terms of smarts. Now, you should be able to give them a challenge, which they can work out. And I believe that. And that, that's so maybe modifying the mission a little bit of East to go from providing uh, clinical guidelines to developmental guidelines or, you know, sort of societal good guidelines. So you're beginning to get the young people involved in the solution. You are the solution. You are not the problem. Society is kind of telling us we're the problem. We build too much, this, that. No, we're the solution here. And once you get that thinking and convert that into documents which are tested and proven and then directives, we are the solution. It's developed by us. That's what we're doing with clinical guidelines. It's worldwide. It's changed stuff. So, you know, to me, that's a challenge for the young people to, to do in the same way it was a challenge for us to develop a society which could do the things it's doing now. You've taught us a great deal today, Dr. Jacobs, about nascent good and the power of an idea. This has been a terrific uh, time today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This concludes another episode of East Storycast. Histories of trauma and emergency surgery told by the people who were there. Until next time, let's keep the conversation going.